President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. And we're coming to you live from the Sirius XM Mothership here in New York. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree and its affiliates. And I should disclose, Wisdom Tree Investments is a sole owner of Wisdom Tree Asset Management, a registered investment advisor and is a substantial minority owner of Advisor Engine, a digital wealth management platform, Wisdom Tree, and Arts Affiliates has a financial interest in Advisor Engine and its business. Um, interesting week in the markets. Professor, we've all been waiting for the Fed uh, to come on, talk about interest rate policies. Um, we, we, we got the news. They are starting to roll off their balance sheet uh, starting next October or this October. Uh, we're going to hear what Professor Siegel thinks on the market and the Fed and economic policy. Uh, in the studio with me, I have two great guests, Rich Cancro, He's the CEO of Advisor Engine and Joel Bruckenstein. Uh, thank you guys for joining us in the studio here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to be talking about the future of fintech with these two gentlemen. Um, we're going to get the professor for some commentary here just in a moment. Uh, I think we now have the professor on the line. Professor, welcome. Uh, any thoughts on the markets here before we turn to our two guests? We have the Fed policies. I'm just looking for your, your commentaries here on what's happening. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think it was a story of the Fed. I think the Fed was a bit more aggressive um, then the market had anticipated uh, only four FOMC members want the rate to remain unchanged uh, in December. Everyone else wanted one up and one wanted two up to 50, up 50 basis points. Now, one must remember that we have three more employment reports. There's a lot of, uh, you know, data coming through in the next three months, so that, that may change. Uh, also, three, uh, still three um hikes are uh in the cards for 2018 i think that was a little bit of a surprise given how uh, they have not been making their inflation uh target and uh the fact that the 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 long-term rates have remained so low uh that said actually um although they changed very little in their forecast the biggest change is something we've been talking about a long time here on, on, on our program, and that is uh, the long-term neutral Fed funds rate went all the way down from three to t- two and three quarters percent. Now, um, this was a rate that was above four several years ago. Uh, they're they're all coming to the realization that it, interest rates are going to remain lower. Now, I think it's going to be closer to two percent, um, but. Uh, They've moved it to two and three quarters. I think there's a by the long-term interest rate remaining so low, there are people on the board that are worried about let's not try to invert this curve or get it too close to being inverted. So uh, I think if they see the 10-year stay low, uh, there's no way we're going to get three rate hikes in 2018. Um, and, uh, and 
Um, but, uh, you know, outside of that, uh, everything is fine. Um, I mean, Yellen reiterated the fact that, t- that you know, the uh, uh, quantitative tightening, uh, finally the reduction of the balance sheet is um, uh, going to be pretty automatic. She was very emphatic, saying, I don't want to use the balance sheet anymore unless I have to. I want to go back to the Fed Fund's target as our main instrument. Uh, one thing should be uh, clear when people talk about normalization. Um, it is true that they're reducing their b- balance sheet, but nowhere near to the level it was before. And secondly, uh, there's no talk about changing the way the Fed funds rate is uh, set. Uh, again, for the first 90 Five years of the Fed, it was supply and demand for reserves and uh, open market operations. Now it is set by the payment of interest rate on reserves, a very different model. No, So uh, when we talk about uh, Fed normalization, um, uh, it's only in a very small part, uh, uh, and that's in the balance sheet that isn't even going to be normalized back to the old level. But it's a very different model about how they set that short-term uh, Fed funds rate uh, than um, what it had been during most of the Fed's existence. Yeah, when, we th- when we think about the market's reactions to the Fed change, um, the, the S&P is still sort of sitting there near highs. We had you know, maybe a tiny you know, pressure, but rates, yeah. rates have moved up a little bit. We had a little bit of move in the dollar. I mean, how, how are you thinking about the sort of close of the year? I saw you on CNBC saying if we just got this tax reform, we would get another 10% move well, um, supporting the markets. Anything yeah, else that, you're looking for? Is that the yeah, sto- big I, story I is think, tax reform? I think that's true. I mean, I... You know, we do have that health care bill that, you know, has to be voted on and decided on uh, by uh, September 30th to get the reconciliation. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, talk next. And if, if, if they get that, and from what I understand now, you know, that the House has basically said that they're willing to go along with it, there may be very minor changes in conference. Um you know, that would raise the problem because no one, even I, didn't think they can get anything done on health uh, reform. I still think, though, even if it doesn't come out, that that tax reform is going to be there. They, they certainly couldn't stand two failures uh, in a row. So I still think that that's a viable possibility. Now, it might disappoint some people that are wanting a 15 percent rate. Um, and the kind of consensus is 20 to 25, depending on other features. But I think that that's in the market. Listen, earnings are still doing very well. Very little reduction in year uh, uh, fourth quarter earnings. They're, they're holding very, very firm. This is a huge increase from 2016, um, the biggest increase we've had in three, four years in earnings, um, with GDP still growing at a at a rather anemic 2% pace. So. Um, uh, you know, I think the market is uh, saying, hey, the Fed thinks there's a lot of strength here. Otherwise, it wouldn't be projecting three uh, rate increases next year. They think the uh, temporary effects of the hurricane, et cetera, are going to be just that, temporary. And, um, you know, everything else looks looks fine. So I think the market is anticipating they want a tax cut, and that, I think, could fuel 10%. Yes. Well, very good. I thank you for that summary, Professor. Have a great weekend. Okay, thank you. Talk to you next week.
Thanks. All right. So I'm going to turn to my two guests here. We have two great guests in the studio with me again. We have Rich Kinkrow. He's the co-founder, chief executive officer of Advisor Engine, firm Wisdom Tree is going to do a lot of work with. We have Joel Brockenstein, president of Technology Tools for today. Again, Joel, Rich, thanks for coming to our studio here. Thanks for having us. So, Rich, maybe uh, before we get into Advisor Engine, maybe you could just talk a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, and sort of how that let your sort of past experiences, how that got you towards founding Advisor Engine. Sure. Uh, gladly talk about my least favorite topic myself. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in financial services for 25 years, uh, always worked uh, in, in and around New York City. I uh, started my career uh, in 1992 uh, with what was Waterhouse Securities, now it's TD Ameritrade. It was the third person at their R. A custody business, and at that place, um, in that time, I immediately fell in love with an independent RA channel, and and ended the day at offering fiduciary advice. Just totally hit all my ethos. Uh, from there, I joined a startup, worked inside a larger company, DLJ Direct, which was part of Pershing and DLJ. And there was my first time building out consumer apps. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of energy, a lot of innovation. Uh, you know, if you think about the 90s, that was a time where, you know, the web was new. And delivering online quotes, trading, online new accounts in 1993, we were the first to do that. It was really exciting. Uh, online IPO center, uh, institutional research, Dow Jones Newswires, all of that streaming out to the retail uh, it was a really exciting time. It's also a time when I worked at Pershing and was the uh, original program manager in what, I was, what is now today's flagship for Pershing NetX360, which is uh, technology that Pershing delivers to their advisors and their advisors' clients. Uh, as we traveled into 2000s, it went to Bear Stearns, the head of product development for their clearing and custody business, delivering technology, investment management uh, framework, uh, then ultimately ran the RA custody business there. Did the same at Merrill Lynch, ran the money manager services, custody business, RA custody business, um, and also head up the financial planning tools across uh, Merrill Lynch. Just a little bit of experience in financial services and technology. Just a little bit. It makes you sound old. Just a little. Joel, and so maybe give us, uh, be, we'll, we'll go back and forth with the two of you, but give us, uh, get, introduce yourselves to listeners, your background in sort of tech tools for today, what, what people call T3 and, and some of your, your branding here. Sure. Well, I started also back in the business in the day, back in uh, 1980. And um, I was originally in foreign exchange. That company needed to start a broker-dealer, and I got elected to start it. So I ran a small institutional broker-dealer for a while. And in the mid-'90s, um, I got into the RIA business. I established my own RIA. And at the time, I was looking for software for my own business, and I was very frustrated uh, with, I thought, the lack of technology that was available to independent RIAs, and I took an interest in that. And coincidentally, one of my first retail clients um, was a guy who used to work for PC Magazine, and he was running a lab at that time out of his house. Hmm. And I said, I wonder why nobody's doing this for our industry. Nobody's really testing software and hardware. And, uh, you know, eventually it led me a few years later to write a book on technology um, with my partner at the time, David Drucker. It was called uh, Virtual Office Tools for a High-Margin Practice. I started writing about technology for advisors for a number of industry publications, and that led to uh, the conferences, the T3 Advisor Conference and the T3 Enterprise Conference. The first one, Advisor, targets advisors, independent RIAs, and the Enterprise Conference primarily targets broker-dealers, insurance companies, banks, institutions who are buying software to provide to their advisors. 
Very good. So now we have a good sense of who you guys are. Um, you know, we're going to try to set this conversation as the future of fintech. Both of you have a, have a lot of history looking at different platforms. Rich, you're developing a platform. Uh, maybe you could talk through how your experiences throughout your, your career led you to founding Advisor Engine and, and sort of the mission, what you're trying to achieve here with Advisor Engine. Sure. So maybe I'll start with the mission, and I'm going to talk a little bit of history. On the mission side, um, we are really here to help advisors grow and connect to their clients in a very deep and meaningful way. Um, if you if you go back to the 90s, um, you know, when advisors were purchasing software, one of the core things they were buying in the 90s was really was portfolio management oriented their practice around the portfolio management tools. And when you get into the 2000s, a lot of advisors were uh, really kind of pivoting to CRM um, as well as financial planning tools. Uh, when we think about today in 2017, um, you really have to connect the client the advisor and the home office staff. That entire that, that vertical of users need to be connected um, and, and and drive efficiency as well as relationships. So our our thesis is that you need to be thinking about an open architecture platform that truly connects advisors to clients and uh, and have a deep from a relationship standpoint, but also the platform should have uh, a lot of capabilities that are beautifully designed, easy to use. Um, that will automate everything, right? And that's the, that's the DNA of our firm is automation of all those pain points that advisors have from client onboarding. Um, subjectively, I'll say we are by far the best in the industry in client onboarding. Mm. Um, and that means opening accounts we, uh, to funding accounts to um, and then the other side of it is fee billing, performance reporting, automating all those capabilities. Now, um, you know, one you hear a lot in fintech. I think the, one of the most popular areas is sort of the robo advisor. Um, how do you think of advisor engine as competing with the robo advisors, enabling the robo advisors? What's your positioning there? So we we think, um, and I'll try to use different phrases for this, but digital yeah. um, advice is incredibly important to augment advisors' practice and and really deepen the relationship with the client. So we 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 believe an advisor is an important part of the relationship and providing financial advice and that technology is not replacing the advisor. It's actually helping them deliver to more people their advice um, and really driving mass personalization of advice, which is, um, I think, an incredible thing if you think about where this will go. So if you think about, um, I'm going to go back to the 90s again. I'll do that from time to time here. Um, in the 90s, you had, if you, you think, you know, basically E-Trade and uh, Vanguard and TD, Ameritrade, Schwab, Fidelity, basically delivering all the tools that used to be behind the wall that brokers had access to. So real-time quotes, streaming quotes, access to IPOs, institutional research, all those things that used to be behind the wall got was put into the hands of the retail. So today, there's literally no difference for a consumer. Uh, if you go to one of those firms, they actually have the same tools that a hedge fund manager would have. You know, maybe the only difference could be, you know, that hedge fund manager may have some, you know, great algorithm they have that's proprietary. But the tools themselves are pretty much identical. The same thing is happening now in, in the delivery investment advice. The tools that were once kind of held within the advisor's practice are now being exposed to clients, um, which I think ultimately is a good thing because I think advisors can really uh, benefit from that. So how, how big is your footprint today? Like when you look at, you know, the clients using Advisor Engine, um, how would you describe, you know, the your footprint across the industry? Uh, sure. So we started, we launched our first product um, in July of 2014. 
Um, we have close to $3 billion of assets on the platform across about 50 firms, and those firms kind of range in size from independent RIAs to uh, credit unions uh, and broker-dealers. Yeah, I, mean, I remember when Barron's did a story of the top 10 robos, they might have missed that the, you know, the advisor engine platform is, is competing with some of those top 10 robos because they don't see the spattered out of the different brands. Um, maybe, Joel, let me bring you into the conversation. I mean, how, do you, how do you look at what sort of the, this digitization, as Rich described it, and where these sort of trends in the industry are going? How, you know, maybe any feedback on what you heard from Rich so far and, and your, your independent observations on the, on, on the industry here? Sure. I mean, I don't disagree with anything Rich said. I have a little different perspective because I'm actually doing a lot of consulting with advisory firms. I go in, into firms and see how they operate from the inside. And, um, you know, from the firm perspective, I would say there's still a lot of inefficiencies in offices. And uh, to Rich's point, you know, one of the things that advisors need to be able to do if they want to be able to help more people is to be able to scale their own businesses so they can serve more clients. And I think these new digital platforms, including Advisor Engine, certainly are a platform that they can leverage their intellectual property off and they can become more efficient, serve more clients, and, and really help the American population uh, manage their money better. So from a, that's one good part of it. You know, another part is I think that client expectations around technology have changed. So... Um, you know, Rich and I have been in the business a long time. I'm a little older than Rich. And when I came into the business, people expected to get paper reports, and they didn't expect to have reports or alerts delivered to them, for example, through their smartphone. Now they do. So advisors need to have those kind of capabilities, and they need to be able to interact with their clients pretty much 24-7. And in order to do that, obviously, you need the proper technology tools, and unfortunately, not all advisors yet have them today. Do you, do you think there's a fear that for the older generations, people don't want to open accounts online, that they don't want to just see the, the stuff on an app, that they want those hard copy, 100-page uh, printout reports that some people get delivered all the time? I think there's a lot of misconception on the part of advisors about what their clients actually want. Um, I would argue that most clients, even older clients, are more tech-savvy than advisors give them credit for. Um, most people my age are Skyping their grandkids right? Having conversations with them over Skype, FaceTime, whatever. So they're using the technology. Do they want always to interact with their advisor that way? Well, I think one of the great things about a good digital tool or a good advisory practice that employs digital tools is you let the consumer choose. So just because not every consumer wants it doesn't mean you shouldn't have it. You need to make it available and then put choice in the consumer's hand. Doesn't add... Um real-life example, literally last week. Um, I was speaking with an investment advisor um, who targets 10 million above clients. And um, he happened to be a millennial uh, advisor uh, by his age, and he had just um, onboarded a new client who's 70 years old in that category of over $10 million. The first phone call that that client made to him was, your technology sucks, <laughs> right? And that's a 70-year-old ultra-high-net-worth yeah. client so, so from my perspective, you think about millennials, for sure, you have to have technology to service them. That's without question. As you go into Gen X, baby boomers, and so on and so forth, um, there's certainly an expectation of technology. It's a question of kind of uh, it's not as binary, right? There's it, it a definite for the Gen, Gen yeah. Y, um, but it's certainly needed for the, the various types of clients. And I would just add it really depends on your client base. If you have people who are working, let's say, for Fortune 500 firms, high net worth individuals, they're using these tools at work. 
they've used them for work, at work for years. Why wouldn't they want them in their personal life as well? How do you think, um, you know, sort of staying on this, this demographics issue and just how different sort of age profiles might use it? I mean, how do you think firms are thinking about managing next generation planning? Is is this part of what you've seen as, as some strategies that, you know, there's an older client base for a lot of firms and they need to figure out how do they get outreach to the younger generation? Any, any commentary on that? Mm-hmm. I can take that. So, yes, I mean, definitely. I think Every firm that's in the business knows that there's going to be this tremendous wealth transfer. The number I hit bandied about is like $30 trillion over the next 20 years or so. And everybody obviously wants as big a piece of it as they can get for their advisory firm. And so, yes, one of the things they do is outreach to the next generation, trying to make a connection to their current client's children. Now, again, how do you do that? You're not going to do it with a paper report, right? You're not going to do it with a phone call. You're going to do it by having face-to-face meetings initially, but then by keeping in touch with them the way they want to be communicated with, which is some sort of digital experience. Also, if you're looking to get the next generation of clients earlier, one, a number of studies I've seen um, seem to indicate that millennials are engaging with independent advisors at a younger age than their parents were. So even if they don't have a great deal of wealth to manage today, They have other issues. They may have issues with student debt, for example, which was not as big an issue for their parents. So you need different kind of software to deal with that, number one, a different approach. And you need to engage with these people earlier because they have serious issues that they need help with. And and I I would add there's another dimension to that as well. Uh, Not only is it important to um, have great modern technology to connect to the next generation and help uh, basically that transition of assets, it's also actually for advisors transitioning their own practice. I mean, you, I mean, I, and I don't think that the industry is talking about this enough, that for you to recruit the next generation of advisors, you can't use your father's technology, right? You have to have a modern technology uh, footprint uh, in your overall ecosystem to be able to recruit and ultimately transition your business. Or potentially, if you're looking to sell your business, I think it's incredibly important to show that it can live on and that you actually have the next generation, the next partner available to you. I actually experience this when I'm doing consulting. I run into uh, older advisors who are trying to recruit young top talent. And they're like, well, we've had 20 people in, we've interviewed them, and all of them have gone to another firm. I don't understand why. And I say, look around your office. You know, you're using CRT monitors. You're basically using adding machines. Who wants to work here, right? So if you're not giving young advisors the proper tools, you're not going to be able to recruit them. But let me just reintroduce my guest here. We've got Joel Brockenstein, president of Tech Tools for today, T3, uh, sort of shorthand there. And we've got Rich Cancro, CEO of, of Advisor Engine here in our New York studio, SiriusXM Studios. Um, maybe, sort of, Rich, you talked about sort of the full technology stack. I mean, what, when you think about the Advisor Engine offering, I mean, really, um, it goes beyond. I know you, you don't like people to say it's just this online, enabling a, an online robot. Like, what do you think is the full experience? of where the, the sort of tools you're trying to, to help advisors solve? What, what problems are you trying to solve for people? Sure. So um, going back to our mission, which is to help advisors grow and connect the clients, um, you know, you won't hear me talk about, um, hey, we're going to free up cycles for the advisor to do more things. What we talk is about, we're going to help advisors grow. And that means two kind of two parts of the balance sheet, right? On the one side, you have to make them really efficient and connect all the automate everything, right? So client onboarding, client funding, transfer of assets, uh, retention of documents, fee billing, 
all of that. And now we do that in a highly personalized ways for the advisor and the client, which I think is incredibly important, right? So we will go to an advisor and say, we'll digitize you. You don't have to conform to us. They're all setup options, right? So your risk questionnaire, your profiling of clients, your your investment policy statement, your models, your um, names of investments and asset classes, all those things is whatever the advisor uses traditionally to grow their business, we will just make that so much better for them to use and automate all of that and provide a much better experience for their client if they want to onboard the client digitally with the client doing it or the advisor doing it. Now, when the advisor yeah. doing it, there's even more flexibility. So that's kind of the one side. That's the efficiency side. The other side is the growth side, right? So when we think about that, having prospecting tools that are out you know, out uh, on, on the uh, fully branded in the advisor's name. So when you think about goals-based planning, when you think about risk, uh, comparing your current portfolio versus uh, proposed portfolio, data aggregation, net worth, um, all those tool that tool set in a very flexible client portal, that is what um, will help an advisor grow in a significant way. Yeah. And so, Joel, when you think about how advisors are starting to adopt this technology, do you see, I mean, where do you see people going wrong? What are sort of the big mistakes you see as people adopt these types of technology? Well, before I get to that, okay. I just want to comment briefly on what Rich said. So when I look at it again from a little different point of view because I'm trying to help advisors purchase technology, and I say, well, how does something like Advisor Engine differentiate from other firms? And I think it's really about solving the problems that advisors have. And the problems that I see advisors having all the time are a client portal, for example. They have one, but they're not satisfied with it. It's not robust enough. It doesn't integrate with all the tools that they need. Where do they get them today, these client portals? Well, they get them from competitors. I mean, some of them buy them as part of a package. Maybe um, they have portfolio management software, and it offers a portal. So names of some companies that come to mind would be Orion, Black Diamond, um, Tamarack, for example. And in the case of certainly a few of those companies, because they're portfolio management based a lot of the portal functionality is focused around portfolio management as opposed to more of a holistic planning approach and so i think a holistic planning approach is important another challenge they have is client onboarding and again i i would agree with rich that very few companies do that well today it's a challenge everybody wants it but where to get it not a lot of places to get it so i'm very happy to hear that uh advisor engine actually does offer that and the third thing is you know, personal finance is personal. And every advisor thinks that they have intellectual property and a personal relationship with their clients that's very important, and that's what differentiates them, for example, from the robos. So it's important that an advisor can bring his or her intellectual property into the technology and make it work the way they want to so they can give that personalized experience to their client. It sounds like a very simple thing, but there are very few platforms on the market today that can actually be customized by the advisor to give that personal experience. Yeah, that's exactly how we think about it as well. And that's why we built it so that, you know, really there's three types of ways advisors can deliver advice today. They can have a direct-to-consumer model, uh, low-touch, low-cost, automated, cool client portal. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is the traditional way they delivered advice, which is advisor-engaged and uh, playing the center of that relationship. And then the middle one, which is starting to grow, which is have an automated solution, but supported by an advisor. So all, so that, so getting into what Bob was, uh, Bob, <laughs> Joel was talking about, um, was really about letting an advisor have the flexibility to offer their, uh, 
their practice any way they want to and then turn on and off features, right? So you may say, I don't want to have a robo-advisor for this client segment, but I'll have a robo-advisor for this client segment. And you go on and on with the list of features you can turn on and off. Now, coming back to mistakes advisors make, I think there's a number of them. The one that I see that's most common, I would say, is that um, advisors tend to think of technology in a vacuum. So they say, okay, I'm having a problem with something. Tracking clients must be a CRM problem. Let's buy CRM. They'll go out and buy CRM and not give a little thought to their whole technology ecosystem and not enough thought maybe to how it plays into the client experience. My opinion and I think it's the approach that Advisor Engine takes, is that you need to have a more holistic approach. You have to think about how all the pieces fit together and how it's actually going to impact your employees, your clients, and the whole service model. So that's one issue. Um, Another issue, which is closely related to that, is that most advisors have never written or had a technology plan. So they do everything piecemeal and they're not strategic about it. And The third thing I would say is that advisors, when they buy technology, think it's going to solve a problem in and of itself, and it never does. Technology is a tool that you use that supports other things in your office. So, for example, um, if you're using CRM to power workflows, you need to have processes to power, right? If you've never taken the time to think about what the workflows are, For example, what does the new account opening process look like? How do you then automate that? Yeah, You're buying an automation tool, but you don't know how you're going to automate it. So I think advisors need to think a little more strategically about technology in order to get the most from their technology. We're going to have to take a a short break. It's been a very good first half of the conversation. We're going to be coming back with Rich Cancro, Joel Barkenstein. After the break, you're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. In the studio here in our New York offices of SiriusXM, we have Joel Brokenstein of T3 Technology Tools for today. We have Rich Cancro, CEO of Advisor Engine, talking the future of fintech, how advisors can use technology sort of power both growth and help to, to sort of manage their, their businesses. Uh, we're talking here on just the future of technology. Um, and Rich, maybe you could sort of lead into how do you think, you know, there's there's generally price pressures across the industry. We see it from the investment management side. You see it in the advice side. How do you see investors, advisors using technology sort of manage, you know, price pressures just generally? Yeah. And, uh, you know, certainly we've seen on the manufacturing side, uh, lots of price compression. So now I think the distribution side, so the advisor side of it, um, I do believe there's some price compression that's occurring. I don't think it's going to be in uh, a rush to 25 basis points, uh, but we certainly see, uh, you know, I see at least I believe, over the next three to five years, there's going to be price compression. Um, and I, so I think it's incredibly important, going back to a point ago that Joel was making, is for advisors to actually create a, at least a three-year plan uh, and really think about, hey, if, if your average basis points goes from 75 to 50 basis points, what does that mean to your practice if you want to maintain your margin? You know, how many clients do you have to serve? What are the assets? What are the, what are the number of people you need to serve those clients? Um, and the, the other part of that um, is really getting into your value. You know, what is the value that the advisor uh, is demonstrating versus an automated solution? So if you think of a world in three to five years, 
if you know if my hypothesis is right, is that more tools that are typically with the advisor, uh, home, you know, in their office, but it gets out to the client. So think financial planning tools, think risk tools, uh, think uh, portfolio construction tools, all those types of things that can be in the hands of clients, and some already are. Um, and even a world where there's more sophisticated asset classes being delivered, um, you know, how does the advisor? demonstrate their value so they are able to uh, maintain their margins. And so that's, I think, incredibly important for them to think about. Yes, and I talk to advisors about this a lot, and uh, I agree with the price compression. And if I'm in a room with advisors and I ask them, how many of you think you actually add investment alpha after all your taxes and expenses are in there to the client? Typically, less than 5% of the room raises their hand. So they know that's not what their value proposition is. But many of them historically have led with investment advice. And I think the change you're starting to see in the industry is a move much more towards holistic financial planning and behavioral finance because that's really where advisors do add alpha. It's not helping you build a better portfolio. I used to say to my clients, you know, I hope if I'm doing my job that I stop you from doing stupid things at critical junctures. Yeah, do you, Rich, do you think about behavioral finance alpha? Like, how do you think about, you know, there's like Vanguard saying there's maybe a 3% advisor alpha from keeping people in. I mean, there's a lot of people focused on behavioral finance elements. How do you think about that in your in your offering? Sure. Well, I, I certainly think, uh, well, we plan on offering it. We don't yeah. offer behavioral finance today. Um, but I also think um, on the behavioral finance side, is there's a lot of different versions of that. So I think when I think about when we delivered or when other other uh, individual advisors delivered, that it has to work for them and how they how they think about financial services and, and delivering advice in the overall uh, business practice. Um, so we think choice is going to be important. We think that um, it, it's just scratching the surface. Um, I don't want to front run too much where I think this conversation will go, but if you think about the future, maybe have a little behavioral finance with some virtual reality and tie that together hmm. um, and really see. Uh, you know, you put think about a world where instead of doing the physical risk profile, you're putting out there pictures of things of where you want to go in your life. Think about uh, putting your children through college. Think about when you want to retire. How what's your lifestyle in retirement? And actually, kind of measure your brain waves and take a look and that that drive. And so that's uh, when you start thinking about technology of the future um, and putting that together with behavioral finance. I think it'd be really interesting to get to the right answer to satisfy the client's needs. And I think that's only one aspect of what virtual reality and augmented reality will do. I think it has great applicability in the financial services world. I mean, I used to say when I was running my practice, wouldn't it be great if I could clone myself, I could service more clients? Well, guess what? In a sense, now I can. If I can program my intellectual property into a machine using artificial intelligence, machine learning, what have you, and then be able to replicate that experience with an avatar, I can be working 24-7 with 20 clients at the same time. And I don't think it's going there tomorrow or in three years, but I think that's one possibility about where the industry could be headed. Yeah. Speaking of AI, I mean, you sort of just had a post on, on your website that, that you pointed me to about uh, how TD Ameritrade is starting to use Facebook Messenger to start to communicate in this sort of AI. I mean, how do you think they're using that? Is that a, a place that advisors can start to try to have sort of these chat bots that, that program our automatic answers? Well, obviously, for the big financial institutions, it works best because what they're dealing with is call centers, and they have all these retail clients calling in all the time, and having real people on the phone all the time can be expensive. Imagine if a computer could do it and do it cheaper and better. Well, they can, right? And they're called chatbots. 
And so what's interesting about the TD Ameritrade one is it is a very interactive experience. Um, first of all, again, it's client choice. The client chooses to interact that way. But one of the things that TD did that I think is very smart is it's augmented by real human support. So at any time during the interaction on Messenger, if a person feels uncomfortable and they want to talk to a person at the other end, they can ask for it, and there are folks there, I think, 17 out of 24 hours a day, um, and eventually it'll go to 24 hours a day. But I think there's a lot of common questions that people have um, that can be answered just fine today through machine learning, and I think one of the areas you're going to see it emerge first, you know, artificial intelligence and financial services is on the consumer sort of service side, replacing the call center, but eventually a lot of very simple things that I say simple, that any advisor who's qualified would know today can be programmed in a machine and an avatar could give, give the same answer. So, for example, I'm making X number of dollars a year. This is the tax bracket I'm in. This is what my 1040 looks like. You know, do I qualify for a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA or both? And if both, which one should I invest in? I mean, that's something you could easily program today. And uh, so, Rich, anything on AI is that, as, as you think about uh, just the future of that, is how is is a lot of just your systems the AI that you're trying to rope into people, or, or where? How do you think about that? Yeah, on the AI front, um, and I happen to think that it's it's just really starting to get there, and you know, it's really going to be developed around using really good data to start with, and then I think over time you're going to learn what you can do with that data and then automate everything and make it really interesting for the advisor. So when I think about AI, there's probably two sides of that. One is I think, uh, you know, how I think about it is I want to make the advisor's life really simple, right? So it should be really smart. It should know what the advisor does every day and serve up that information in a meaningful way, however the advisor wants it, so that they don't actually have to be interacting with the technology, you know, proactively, right? The technology should be doing the proactive for the advisor. Um, The second part I think about is um, the advisor business is highly referral business today, right, which is uh, a slow process, right? They get involved in their communities. They get involved with different philanthropy, and they – have different kind of centers of influence who uh, would be attorneys or state uh, people and so on and so forth that develop their relationship. And so you kind of get a client or two or three or four per year. Um, So that's kind of a slow process. Um, If you think about AI, you can use that um, to really expand that referral network and put it on steroids, right, and get just just total – bend the curve in terms of how many people you can interact with and actually now have a, a nice way to interact with them because it's actually somebody within your network. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about that way to help them grow, I think that's that's another area that's just starting to scratch the surface. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of other thoughts on AI. I read a quote recently from Michael Dell where he said, um, AI is the rocket ship and data is the fuel. Well, financial services, we have a lot of data, so we have a lot of fuel. And I think that data can power um, some really intelligent changes in the industry. I'll give you just one simple example of something that I read one bank is actually doing today. If you're a bank and you have clients who have direct deposit and they're getting direct deposit every two weeks from Corporation A, and all of a sudden they notice that now they're getting direct deposit from Corporation B, their direct deposit source has changed. They can infer from that that somebody's changed jobs, 
and maybe they need to do a rollover 401k. So they can proactively reach out and ask them, hey, do you want to roll over this 401k? It seems like you just changed jobs. Well, imagine if advisors have that kind of intelligence too that's constantly combing through their CRM and their other systems and saying, what's actually changing you know, in my client base that could be actionable? And it'll tell them proactively who they should reach out to. Yeah. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We have Joel Brockenstein of T3 Technology Tools for today, Rich Cancro, CEO of Advisor Engine here in our Sirius XM studio in New York. Um, we're talking technology. You know, I think online, you know, there couldn't be more discussions around one part of technology, which is which is blockchain, um, the Bitcoin of the world, which is just one specific component of blockchain technology. Um, Joel, you and I were talking about this a little bit. I mean, how do you think, you know, people are asking if you're an advisor and one, one person I talk, I follow online was saying, how soon can I actually implement blockchain technology to help me manage my business? Where do you think the first, you know, it seems far away, but where do you think the first implementation of blockchains will come for people trying to use it in their business? Well, first of all, I think you're right. Well, most people, when they talk about blockchain, the first thing that pops up into their mind is Bitcoin. And uh, most advisors are not very big on Bitcoin for a number of reasons. So I think it, it has somewhat of a bad connotation with them, and they're a little bit worried about it or scared of it. Having said that, I think it has potentially a lot of applicability in the business. Um, some of the things we were talking about offline is everything from property title records to contracts um, to clearing trades. All could be possible in the future through blockchain. But I think, you know, for the real retail advisor, um, the independent RIA firm, they're not going to be the ones that invent that technology. It's going to have to come downstream downstream to them. And I don't think we're quite there yet. So yeah. I don't see... Estimate next, crystal ball how many years? I mean, I would say at least three until we see, a, see some real applicability of it. And probably contracts are one that seems a safe bet that will be early. I would love to be able to say reconciliation. Um, I think reconciliation will be automated soon. Totally. I'm not sure if it'll happen on the blockchain or not. Yeah. So like banking, real estate transfers, insurance, all these things. All these things. Where you have high transaction costs, foreign exchange. Those seem like a place where it could be applicable, but just not, it's not there yet. Rich, any view? Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Well, I'll talk about it for two minutes here. Um, I certainly think... um, uh, it's not there yet. And I think about it, how does it actually impact the banks and custodians, right? So where the actual assets are. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about um, uh, today, we just went uh, a few weeks ago as an industry to T2 settlement for, for trades, right? That, that even Today, I think that's crazy. Like, well, how's it not real minutes, time, right? Yeah. It should be seconds, right? Yeah. You buy something, it should immediately exchange. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's any different than Amazon, right? Um, so I can imagine if, if block, blockchain can get to a, a scalable technology, clearly a lot of the banks are investing in this. Mm-hmm. And the end game to me is going to be, right, hopefully a secure environment with very fast transactions. And then that then plays, I think, a hand into which could get scary and it could be also be super positive. You think an advisor wins the client, well, you can move the assets really quick and start providing your advice. On the other hand, you can lose the client really quickly and it removes potentially a lot of friction of movement of assets. Yeah, it's amazing. Once you get loyal to a financial institution, I mean, I I think about how many changes I've ever made to a financial institution I work with. There's like some institutional status quo bias for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
So as we, we've had we've had a broad reaching conversation, um, Joel. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the types of clients, um, you, you sort of service advisors, tech firms who are looking for advice. Maybe just sort of talk a little bit about who should be looking out for you. You talked a little bit about your T three tech conference, both for advisors and enterprise. But who are the types of clients you're trying to work with for people listening in that might want to try to enlist your services? Well, thanks for asking. I would say I have a pretty broad client list. I work um, with some of the largest financial institutions in the country, and it's usually around when they're trying to create something or augment something for advisors or their end clients. Um, I also work with a lot of individual RIA firms and broker-dealers, again, when they're trying to redo their technology or decide on what CRM to buy or what financial planning software or how to configure their whole technology stack. Um, we do run the two conferences, and I also have a blog, the T3, technolo- the T3 Technology Hub, which anybody can go visit. There's no charge for that, and we have a lot of free information about what's going on in the industry. Very good. Um, and Rich, and so maybe before I go to Rich, so just following up on you know where we've been talking, just on this sort of what Rich's business is focused on, advisor engine and sort of the tools for advisors. When you look at the competitive landscape and sort of the online digitalization, there's been a lot of popular stories about these big robos. I mean, maybe how do you think about the robos, the B2C model, and then Rich's model, which is certainly a bit different? I mean, what's your sort of commentary on that? Well, I think you know I'm an advocate for advisors. I've been an advocate for advisors for 30 years. I think they serve a real constituency. And, um, you know, I'm in favor of tools that empower advisors to compete with B2C. Um, So firms like Rich's, I am very much in favor of, and I hope they succeed, and I'll do everything I can to support them. I do think there's a place for B2C. I don't think really they're so much a competitor for advisors. I think they're more competitor for sort of traditional retail products like target date funds, for example, and traditional mutual funds as opposed to true advice. Sure. And uh, so, Rich, just taking out what what Joel just said there, I mean, how do you think about the the competitive landscape as you think about – know who you're trying to trying to attract as clients just maybe sort of some final thinking on the types of clients who should be looking for advisor engine yeah when i think about our unique positioning um, when we founded the firm um, our vision uh, was and still is where um, we have one technology stack that serves enterprises so large financial institutions uh, but it's also uh, very easy to set up for advisors we literally can get them up and running in less than 10 days a client portal um, uh, all of their investment framework, all those things, literally in ten days. Um, so we wanted to make it one technology stack, easy to set up, easy to use, um, and have one you know again service the client, advisor, and the home office. Um, where I think most of our competition, uh, like ninety nine point nine percent, either has been traditional builders of platforms, are now building out digital. Uh, and or there's the former kind of B2Cs who now are pivoting into enterprise, where we literally started with both of that in mind very yeah. uniquely, um, and now we're just moving forward. Right. And so you're trying to do these things like goals-based planning tied to your online portal, tied to the interface, 
and you, you have very open architecture. So it's not just, say, ETFs or mutual funds, but you could do across the board multiple types of assets on these platforms. That's one of the other key competitive decisions. That, for sure. So our investment framework is is uh, very, very flexible, right? So uh, whether it, across different types of investment products, different types of models, I mean, one of our clients, I think, has over 40 models that we that are served up uh, in a very personalized way to their client base. Um, so, yeah, and we, people don't know you're involved. I mean, that's one of the main differences versus some of these other platforms is, you know, you go to a, a you know, a competitor and you basically it's their robo brand. Oh, um, Advisor Engine's brand isn't out there when a client really uses you. That's right. And, and, and not only is it so uh, when uh, Advisor uses our client portal uh, for their clients, um, you will never see our name there. And not only that, all the colors, the branding, all of that are just pure setup options. So it's, it's, it's very personalized to the firm and even the flows, right? So when you think about we're adding goals-based planning uh, as we speak, a firm can say, I want a goals-based planning framework for my client portal, or I don't want it. I want to make it mandatory. Um, I want to have investment analytics. I don't want to have investment analytics. I want the client to go right to portfolio construction or go through all three. Um, all of those those workflows is how the advisor wants to work with their clients. But this is a differentiator between a digital platform that's built for advisors and a digital platform that's built for the consumer. Yeah. If you're dealing with a digital platform that's built for a consumer, they want to have their brand out there. So it's very difficult for advisors to work with that because advisors want their own branding. So a firm like Advisor Engine sort of sits in the background and powers an advisor's intellectual property where if an advisor's working with a traditional B2C company um, that also is trying to service advisors, the branding is going to be a mixed message. And I would say that's a major negative um, for a firm, an advisory firm, when they're choosing a platform. Yeah, I mean, I think that is that does seem to be one of the competitive distinctions um, for advisor engine versus the the, the other traditional B two C platforms. Um, we've talked about a lot of different areas. We maybe hit in our f- final five minutes. Um, any areas that you guys think we haven't hit on as uh, in the, sort of this broad reaching conversation here? Well, I, I actually want to go back a minute because this is really, I think, very exciting for the overall uh, U.S. market. Joel was talking about the ability for advisors to provide advice to more people, and I when I think about that, that really is really exciting. Um, I, there's so many underserved uh, families in the U.S. And now, and I hear this from advisors all the time, that they now feel, you know, they're literally creating associations and things like that to actually help deliver advice to people that traditionally have not received advice from an advisor. So I'm, and so when you think about AI to help actually power that, you think about the digital tools, um, you think about big data, all of that can get advice out to more people. And I think that's, that, that's a great thing that is an outcome of this. If you think about the advisor market 10, 15 years ago, what ended up happening was some of the top advisors in the country started imposing minimums, right? You need, first it was a quarter million, then half a million, then maybe a million dollars to work with me. So they were shrinking the pool of, ad, of clients that they could work with. Now, why did that happen? That happened because they had limited capacity. And they say, we've reached capacity. We can only serve, let's say, 75 families. We better have more wealthy families, right? Because we can't add more more clients to the client base. Now, what you're doing with technology is exactly the opposite, right? You're, again, expanding the amount of clients that they can serve. So it's pushing minimums down. It's allowing top firms to take on clients with less wealth than they could before. Now, not every firm is going to make the decision to do that, but a significant number are, and some of them are even starting subsidiaries or separate firms to deal specifically with that demographic. And I think the reason they do that is 
in some cases, not to water down the brand, but I think primarily it's because they want to deliver a different model. So a lower income client doesn't need all of the services, let's say the sophisticated estate planning that true high net worth people do. So, which I, I just saw a, a survey um, that we came across um, from doing just talking to advisors in terms of what's powering their technology platforms. We, we asked them, uh, is it the CRM, the client portal, digital advice, business management? And it was really across the board. It was almost sort of equal split between the highest percentage was for business management, but then almost like equal between whether they're getting digital advice, client portals, the CRM maintenance. Do you see... You know, I know people can use components of Advisor Engine or sort of the whole package. I mean, do you see one element dominating reasons to, to come visit you? Well, for us, um, well, one's our flexibility. So we're an open architecture platform, not only on the investment side, but also certainly key partners that we have that we integrate with. Um, so, you know, people are coming to us a lot for having all the digital solutions, so the client portal, online advice, uh, but then they also like the modules, right? The ability to offer fee, you know, fee-based billing to all their their assets, um, and there's others who w- want to use the whole platform. Yeah. Um, so we we deliver that type of flexibility that you can turn on and off features literally in seconds. And so there's not really one, but you, you can get the full package that does that CRM piece. But you can, if you say, have a certain CRM. Are there certain CRMs you you will you like to work with more than others? Uh, well, we don't play favorites, but um, one thing we, we actually just did today is we integrated with Juncture. So we're excited about that. And that's actually going to allow uh, clients, uh, advisors, um, to actually take data out of that, uh, out of that CRM. Uh, and it's a very powerful CRM. And start... Uh, opening accounts with that data and providing a complete digital solution, client onboarding, um, and uh, full statusing and electronic signature through that whole process. Um, but we're also uh, integrated with with Redtail and, and Wealthbox and and um, um, Salesforce. Very good. So we're in our final countdown, final minute. Joel, any closing thoughts here? I think it's a very exciting time in financial technology. I mean, there are challenges, but you know, I'm more optimistic than not. I think the way things are developing, advisors are being empowered to serve more clients better than ever. And I think there really is a push around the client experience to make it a much more holistic experience for both the client and the advisor. And I think everybody benefits from that. Very good. Rich, final 10 seconds. Uh, well, I appreciate uh, joining with you guys. And um, uh, Joel, it's good to see you again. Likewise. Thank, Thank you. you both for, for joining us here in the SiriusXM studio. We've been talking with Rich Cancro, CEO of Advisor and Joel Brockenstein, T3 Technology Tools for today. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. Thanks to the New York headquarters for allowing us to borrow their space here. Thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast on all the podcast apps. Thanks again. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.